Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. It's supposed to be rainy today, weather report time, but it's not so far, and I'm just excited. I yeah, it rained a little bit a this morning, day. and it's mm-hmm. kind of gloomy outside now, so it's not like a nice day, but it's a perfect Saturday We had a beautiful... Me rainbow yesterday that I was oh my so gosh. excited about. <laughs> Melissa rarely um, has bursts of excitement. And yeah, you, um, you texted Never. me and you were like, Mandy, go outside and look at this crazy rainbow. Like I'm freaking out about it. I was like, wow, you really are. Like this is a first for me. You never freak out about anything. <laughs> no, I know. And my family was like, can you come inside? I'm like, other neighbors are outside <laughs> looking. It's crazy. Yeah, It was, it was beautiful. It though. was gorgeous. Yeah. And I ended up seeing um, a lot of people on social media, friends like uh, from around here had posted about the rainbow and uh, a lot of people got really good pictures of it. It wasn't as bright over my house, but it looked crazy in some of the other pictures I saw. Um, so yeah. So if you live in the Orlando area... Maybe you saw the big, beautiful rainbow. Let us know. Did you make it to the end of the rainbow? Is there gold? Because I was like, I think I can see the end of it. (laughs) Right? It was amazing, though. And not many things make me that excited. So, like, I literally sent it to you and I like sent it to my mom and my sister. And then looking at the pictures, it doesn't at all look as cool. It's like taking pictures or video of fireworks. You're like, 
sucks. <laughs> yeah, I tried to get my kids to fun. yeah, I tried to get my kids to come see it. I got one of them to go outside for like 20 seconds. He was like, "Oh, cool." And the other one was just like, "I've seen rainbows before." <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's why everybody was getting out of the car. I'm like, "You guys got to look." And they looked and they were like, "Can we go inside?" I'm like, "Yeah." But don't you want to look? Like, no. <laughs> I know. I'm like the same as you because it is so rare to see one that's that bright, especially. And it was like a full rainbow. It wasn't just like a piece of one. It really had like the full arc. And it was just really pretty and very bright, like you said. But I don't know. So I guess not, I thought that not was, everyone appreciates. I thought I was seeing a triple rainbow at one yeah. point. I was turning into the <laughs> double rainbow guy. I was yeah. losing my mind. So thank you for humoring me. Thank you all for humoring us for this. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was such an exciting time. It really was. Yeah, it was. All right, so the episode that we have this week is a little bit different than usual. It is still a true crime case, but to me, it kind of feels a little bit more like an urban legend or folklore. And that has a lot to do with the fact that this case is kind of from a while ago. It's from way back in the 1950s. This story took place in New Zealand in 1954, and it has been a hugely popular case locally in that area. What makes it a little different for us, though, is that many of the sources on this case have a lot of conflicting information. Another interesting thing that I ran into um, was that I found out that there was a movie that was based on this story, and it starred Kate Winslet. It came out in 1994, and I actually searched every possible place to try and find this movie because I just wanted to watch it because the case was so interesting. I was like, I, you know, really wanted yeah. to watch the movie. You told me you actually did see the movie. We'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. But um, you can't get it in the United States. No. Like, it's not a thing. Not anywhere. There's no streaming. I, I was willing to pay whatever the price was, and you just can't do it. I even started looking for ways I could get it. You know, maybe not legally. I just still didn't find it. <laughs> so, you didn't hit the dark web, but you got pretty close. <laughs> I did, yeah. So, um, so that kind of just not being able to find the film um, kind of added to like the mystique of this case a little bit. Yeah. So we're going to do um, the best that we can, but please understand it is a little more challenging to put together a case from the 1950s with 100% accuracy, especially when it happened in a country outside of our own. But no matter what, we're still in for a wild ride and a heck of a story this week. So let's get right into it. Melissa and I are both moms to newish teenagers. Technically, my oldest won't be 13 for a few months, but the attitude says that we are already there. So I'm going to count <laughs> myself as a teen parent. Um, we often talk about some of the nuances of parenting at this age and the challenge of navigating these new and different situations with our kids as they get older. And we kind of say this a lot, like it's it's been, you know, up to this point, you know, we've had like the two and it hasn't really been, nothing really major has changed until recently, right? With our oldest becoming teenagers yeah. and like everything has kind of changed a little bit. And now it's like, we really are just kind of going in blind to this next phase with them because we don't know anything about what to expect with teenagers. So it is kind of crazy to think about yeah. um, parenting teenagers and just how hard it is to parent a teenager. So it's common for parents to have strong opinions, of course, regarding the type of friends that their kids have. I think a lot of people probably grew up hearing, you know, about picking the right friends and not getting caught up in, you know, the bad crowd. And typically what parents mean by this is don't hang out with people who do drugs or vandalize things. But everybody has their own boundaries and expectations when it comes to their own kids. So choosing the right friends could mean something different for everybody. For the respective parents of Pauline Parker and Juliet Holm, it wasn't drugs or crime that threatened their daughters. It was a friendship turned obsession with each other that became incredibly concerning the more time went on. 
Pauline and Juliet became friends at school and quickly bonded over the fact that they each had some unique health conditions and problems. Pauline had been diagnosed with osteomyelitis at the age of five, and osteomyelitis is this infection in the bone marrow which required Pauline to spend three months in the hospital receiving painful treatments and surgeries over the next three years of her life. And because of this condition, Pauline suffered with chronic pain in her legs during her childhood, and she ended up walking with a bit of a limp. While this did get her out of doing PE, it didn't make it very easy for her to have friends. In about 1952, she began attending Christ Church Girls High School. Pauline was very intelligent. She was actually in the top of her class at this school. But although she was smart, Pauline was also known for being kind of off-putting. One person described her as being a, quote, moody, scowling type of girl, end quote, but they also said that she had strong character. During high school, Pauline was definitely not known for being a fashionista. In fact, most people thought she looked dumpy. That's the word they used. She was actually just not traditionally feminine, which at the time was considered a bit weird or odd. Pauline wanted to be called Paul, and she kept her curly black hair shorter than the other girls at school. Again, not something we would really bat an eye at today, but in the 1950s, things were just not the same. It was at Christchurch that Pauline found a friend in one of her classmates, Juliet Holm. Juliet had a heartbreaking childhood, just like Pauline did. When she was a young girl, she and her family lived in London. Her father, Dr. Henry, was a physicist who was apparently a pretty big deal. He was one of England's leading mathematical scientists, and during World War II, he was one of two people who worked out how to counter the German magnetic mine. It's believed that Juliet's mom, Hilda, may have been a homemaker, and she also had a younger brother named Jonathan. Juliet suffered from bomb shock and had nightmares for about a month, and then when she was six years old, she was diagnosed with tuberculosis. She was incredibly sick and actually on the verge of death to the point that the doctor who actually came to see her told her mother that he'd be back next day, but that was just to sign her death certificate. Okay, I have so- I have comments about how I feel like you see this a lot in even with movies that depict this time period, but don't you feel like doctors back then were just so to the point and straightforward? Like I can't yeah. imagine a doctor ever saying something like that to parents at like today being like, no, oh, I'm going to see you tomorrow to sign the death certificate. Like that is not how we speak to patients and like people that are receiving care. And like that, it's just crazy to me. Um, but I feel like I always hear, I feel like that's how it always is, you know, depicted it from the 1950s and 40s where the doctor just comes in and they're so blunt about everything. Yeah. But how terrible would it be to hear that news? You know, that the doctor is saying, yeah, she's going to die tonight. You know, like just, yeah. Awful. I'm going to make my rounds tomorrow, go ahead and have the paperwork drawn up. His Yelp reviews would be horrific. Right? (laughs) Worst bedside manner ever. But Juliet actually pulled through, although she did continue to keep getting sick until doctors eventually told her parents they needed to move to a country with cleaner air. Also, that's like a fun thing to be like, you know what? You have to move somewhere with cleaner air. (laughs) Leave the country. (laughs) And so whenever she was eight, she was actually sent to live with a foster family in the Bahamas, and she later said that this experience really saved her life. After that, Juliet and her family moved to a private island off the coast of New Zealand and lived what Juliet called a Swiss family Robinson lifestyle. They fished, they boated, they built things, full-on Swiss family Robinson style. And by the time she was 10, though, Juliet had already missed three years of school, but fortunately, she'd been taught to read and write by her mother, Hilda, before she was even four, so she was able to catch up really quickly. Unfortunately, when she was just 13, she became sick again, and she was out of school for a while. 
Eventually, Dr. Henry put the world of atomic bombs behind him, and he was appointed the rector at the University of Canterbury. The family lived on the campus there and in a huge stone mansion that had 16 rooms. In 1952, Juliet was enrolled in Christchurch Girls High School, the same year that Pauline Parker had began attending. Like Pauline, Juliet was extremely intelligent, with one IQ test showing that she had an IQ of 170. She was also at the top of the class, but had a similar off-putting personality, just like Pauline did. One of their classmates said that Juliet was like a fish out of water and not in a humble way. She had this posh English accent and walked around kind of being snooty. There was something in the research that I found kind of funny, so I wanted to include it because it just kind of explains Juliet's personality. But there was one instance where she came upon this group of girls in a locker room and they were just joking and goofing off. And she insulted them by walking by and saying, oh, you are all so very mid-Victorian, which is like the best insult. And I just want to use it. Mandy, I would, if you said that to me, I would consider it a compliment. I know. Well, that's why I'm like, now I feel like, is that an insult? I don't know. But I could just picture, you know, just the sass dripping from her tongue when she said that. So Pauline and Juliet really hit it off, though, and their friendship became pretty intense pretty quickly. Some might even call it an intense devotion for each other. But whatever the case may be, things progressed with whirlwind speed, and the teen girls were soon alarmingly obsessed with each other. It's possible that their shared experience with childhood illness is what brought them closer together. They had both been withdrawn and pretty isolated for big chunks of their childhoods. So neither had a lot of experience in the world of making friends and having, you know, these different types of interactions with different people. At first, Hilda and Dr. Henry were very welcoming of their new friendship because Juliet had been so shy and very reserved growing up. But things started getting weird when the girls started becoming really codependent. Pauline's father later said that Pauline had willingly cut herself off from her parents' affection. She was starting to ignore them and not doing what she was told or just even the things that were expected of her. After the friendship started, Pauline became moody. She was easily upset and she got angry easily. The girls ended up in a position where they really had isolated themselves as one unit and they kind of had this mindset that they only needed each other and everybody else was just in their way. But the nature of the relationship wasn't as concerning as the things that followed next. The girls made up new names for each other, refusing to go by Pauline and Juliet, and instead they called themselves Deborah and Gina. They spent a lot of time at Juliet's house, out in this secret spot in the garden that no one else knew about. They referred to this secret spot as their temple, and they made up saints to worship. This reminds me, this is big pin 15 energy in like the second season when the girls like literally create basically the same thing. And now I'm wondering if it was based on this at all. Oh, maybe. Yeah. So Pauline and Juliet began to engage in a bizarre fantasy life and believed they had found a fourth world, which is like a paradise of some sort for them, and that they had the key to this fourth world. Mandy, am I being led to believe there are three worlds and I, I didn't know about Two other ones? I kind of feel like, I mean, I don't know, because I thought the same thing. I'm like, what are worlds one, two, and three? But then I was thinking, like, I really don't know. 
I really don't know. I was thinking like heaven and hell and earth maybe is one okay. or three different ones. And then you have this fourth one that's like none of those things. It's something special. But I don't know where they were going with this. Honestly, I'm not – I wasn't invited into that conversation. You weren't in the garden? <laughs> I was not in the garden. <laughs> okay. So on April 3rd, 1953, Juliet wrote in her diary that they had seen a gateway to the fourth world through the clouds. She wrote that this fourth world was beautiful and peaceful and said, quote, we then realized we had the key. We know now that we are not geniuses as we thought. We have an extra part of the brain, which can appreciate the fourth world. But meanwhile, on two days a year, we may use the key to look into that beautiful world, end quote. Never have I ever (laughs) had an imagination like this. (laughs) And so this fantasy world was something that Juliet and Pauline put a lot of effort into imagining, like spending hours and hours coming up with stories and writing letters to each other as if they were actually characters in this storyline. So to give you an idea about what these stories were like, here are some of the main characters in their storylines. Don't worry, there will not be a quiz on this. We will never talk about this again <laughs> because it is, it's too much for me. So first person, Charles II. He was a second son born of the emperor of Borovnia. I don't know if that's a fourth world, if that's a real country. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Then there was Deborah, who was Charles's mistress and mother of his child, who was named Diablo. Charles led an insurrection and took over the throne, and Deborah became an empress while their son Diablo became the heir. Another character was Lancelot Trelawney, a soldier of fortune. He married the empress of Volumnia, who was only 13 and had a violent temper and eventually killed, quote, all who incurred her wrath, end quote. Wow. I'm starting to think that they were just looking around and seeing, like, items and putting them together. Right. <laughs> volume, shampoo, volume, and Nia. So Lancelot eventually became the emperor of Vol- Volumnia, and he and the empress had a daughter named Mariel. Yoke it. <laughs> Not my cup of tea, but we'll keep going. These letters and stories that the girls wrote each other were eventually combined into novels that they would let other people read. I have to believe force because I'm not reading this. One of the people who read the writing said that it was really innocent, adventurous, and the kind of thing he'd expect a couple of teenagers to write. (laughs) (laughs) But later, the writings became more dark and the topics shifted to murder, suicide, sudden death, imprisonment, and bloodshed. It got to a point where anytime Pauline would visit Juliet at her house, she would talk about how unhappy she was at home and how her mom didn't understand her or love her. Juliet said she was happier with the homes. At home, she said she was subject to corporal punishment, and she had many arguments with her mom, so she just preferred to hang out with Juliet at her house. So these girls started talking about publishing their novels and moving to America to become actresses. Their first plan was to land somewhere in New York and find somebody to publish their books. Should be easy peasy, right? No big deal. You just come to America and find someone to publish your books. Um, So after which they were going to go make their way to Hollywood to become actors while supervising the filming of their novels, which they were absolutely sure would be turned into movies. These are very lofty goals. Yeah, I've never had this kind of confidence even in the fourth world. Right. It's not possible (laughs) for me. So they actually had several plans of action when it came to how they were going to fund all of this, one of which involved sex work, keeping in mind they are teenagers. They actually went so far as to do the math on how much they thought they could realistically make, and they considered it as an option. Another scheme was to steal the money they needed from the register at Pauline's dad's fish shop. And in another desperate attempt to get some money, they tried to blackmail a neighbor. 
They had extremely ambitious goals and plans, which really is not unusual for kids this age, but these particular girls were so far removed from reality that they actually believed they were these profoundly amazing geniuses who didn't need the approval of common people. Juliet's mom tried to tell them that their plan to move to America was, quote, quite impractical, but of course the girls just shrugged her off. When they weren't busy crafting up new and elaborate stories, Pauline and Juliet spent their time acting out the stories they'd already written. Typically at night, they would dress up and sneak out of the house to go act out their stories under the moonlight. They were together constantly, and when they weren't able to be physically together, they talked on the phone and wrote more letters to each other. As time went on, their parents started becoming concerned about the amount of time that the girls were spending together. This fantasy world they created had become all-consuming, and they had both become really codependent in the worst possible way. Their friendship had reached a point where it was too intense for either of the families, so both sets of parents started talking to each other about how they could possibly split the girls up. As we mentioned before, Juliet's parents were Dr. Henry Holm and Hilda, and Pauline's parents were Herbert Reaper and Honora Parker. Interestingly, Herbert and Honora were not married, but had moved in together in the late 1920s and told everyone that they were. This was another thing that was hugely scandalous for the time period. They had four children together in total, but only two of them were brought home from the hospital, and they were Pauline and her sister Wendy. One of their children was unfortunately stillborn, and another was born with Down syndrome. This was back in a time before they called it Down syndrome. It had a really offensive term that they referred to it with, and that child was actually put in an institution, which is really sad. Um, so Herbert owned a wholesale fish business, and Hanora ran a boarding house out of the family's home. Juliet became sick again in the early 1950s, and in 1953, she was once again hospitalized with tuberculosis and sent to a sanatorium for four months before being discharged, but not cured. When she returned home, Pauline was over the moon. She wrote in one of her diaries that she believed that she could fall in love with Juliet. From this point on, the relationship between the girls intensified even more. The stories they concocted became more and more sinister, and it seemed like they were in competition to make up the most horrific story. Everything they wrote about included death in some way, whether it be suicide or assassinations. It wasn't known at the time, but Juliet had been given some experimental, mood-altering drugs during her time at the sanatorium that could have possibly contributed to all of this. As the relationship between the girls continued to become more and more intense, their parents worried more and more about where things were headed. In late 1953, both sets of parents contacted the Parker's family doctor to ask for advice about the close attachment between their daughters. The doctor told them that he believed the girls were in a lesbian relationship and advised that they be separated. At this time in history, being gay was actually considered a mental illness, and the Holmes thought that Juliet should get medical attention quote, for her brain, end quote. They wanted her to be psychoanalyzed, but professionals thought it would be unwise because of her age. They said they were doing everything they could to help, but that Juliet was, quote, highly emotional and would be a responsibility until she developed and acquired a less intense attitude to living, end quote. Which is an interesting thing to say, just having a less intense attitude to living, right? right? Like, yeah. that's... That just says drama. Right. In, <laughs> in April of 1954, the girls found out that Juliet's mom, Hilda, was having an affair with a tenant in their home named Walter Perry. Juliet caught them in bed having tea, 
And when she demanded an explanation, her mom said that she and Walter were in love and that Dr. Henry knew everything and they all planned to live together as a thruple. But the next day, Pauline wrote in her diary that she had gone to visit Juliet. And while there, Dr. Henry told them both that he and Hilda were getting a divorce, which both of the girls were shocked to hear. Pauline wrote, quote, but one thing for sure, Juliet and I are sticking together through everything. We sink or swim together, end quote. But the talk of divorce among Juliet's parents really only increased the girls' stress levels and their mental health declined even further. We have so much more to get into after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. It's been a few years since my kids were in diapers, but boy, do I remember it. Just hoping the baby would sleep through the night only to be woken up by the screams of a child whose diaper could not withstand the nighttime accidents. But parents to littles, now you have a secret weapon that we only dreamed of, and it's called Coterie. Coterie is literally the Rolls Royce of diapers. It's the highest performing diaper on the market for infants and toddlers and has up to two times more liquid capacity and up to four times faster moisture wicking versus other brands. Simply put, that means your baby stays drier for longer. Parents that use Coterie report fewer nighttime diaper changes, which means you and your baby get a better night's sleep. Coterie is dermatologist tested and uses the cleanest ingredients. Plus, the diapers are made of clothing grade material, which gives your baby a cashmere-like feel so it's more comfortable on your baby's skin. While neither of us have littles now, I did share Coterie with my sister-in-law for my niece, and she loved the diapers and even said that since she was using them, my niece hadn't had a diaper rash. She also said the wipes were a great material, soft but durable, and a really nice size, not small like some of those other wipes where you do a quick wipe and now you're wearing what you were just wiping. Right now, Coterie is partnering with our podcast to offer you 20% off your first order plus free shipping at Coterie.com slash momsandmurder. That's Coterie spelled C-O-T-E-R-I-E dot com slash momsandmurder for 20% off and free shipping. Coterie.com slash momsandmurder. If you love listening to our show, we know you love a good whodunit, and who can blame you? So do we. And if you're looking for another way to tickle that itch, do what we did and play June's Journey. June's Journey is a free-to-download game following June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries with twists and turns around every corner. Life is full of mysteries, like why did we all pluck our eyebrows to oblivion back in middle school? And while I don't think I can ever solve that mystery, thanks to June's Journey, there are plenty of mysteries I can solve. While enjoying the glamour of the Roaring Twenties, I can put on my Sherlock hat and help solve mysteries as June Parker, who has a much more glamorous life than I do. I mean, we can't all be solving mysteries while looking chic, but with June, I sort of feel like I am. I really enjoy playing June's Journey while vegging out at night or just taking a break before breaking up another argument of my kids over who has to clean the dishes. Spoiler alert, it will probably be me. I'm in chapter two, and what's great is there are new chapters added every week, so you always have something new and exciting to look forward to. You guys will love the beautiful and immersive scenes filled with drama, danger, intrigue, and maybe a little romance. There's a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were really getting into this very intense relationship that these teen girls, Pauline Parker and Juliet Holm, were having. Things were kind of reaching a boiling point. They were really codependent, spending all of their time together, just absolutely obsessed with each other. So their parents were kind of conspiring together to figure out a way that they could break the two of them up. 
So as we mentioned before, there was a little bit of drama going on with Juliet's parents. Um, Her mom had found another man that she wanted to be in a relationship with. So eventually Juliet's parents did get divorced and they informed Juliet that she would be moving with her dad to South Africa, which I imagine as a teen, you have this best friend that you're with all the time. And, you know, your parents are like, you're moving to another country. Like, yeah, that would be like all the world just came crashing down on you as a, you know, 13 or 14 year old. Totally. So they were supposed to leave on July 3rd, which was just a few weeks later. Pauline and Juliet, of course, were completely distraught over this news. They actually thought which is also funny to me, but they actually thought that it would be a possibility for Pauline to move away to another country with Juliet. But those dreams were soon crushed when both sets of parents informed them that Pauline would absolutely not be moving to South Africa. Pauline's mom, Honora, completely forbade her daughter to move, and Juliet's mom, Hilda, told Pauline that she wasn't allowed to go until she was educated enough to support herself and had her parents' consent. Because... Dr. Henry wasn't going to be taking any responsibility for Pauline. Although they were actively in the process of splitting the girls up for good, the Holmes did let Pauline stay at their house with Juliet for the last two weeks before she moved away. That I do not understand. Um, But it was, yeah, but it was during this two week period that the violence that the girls had been writing about for months really reached this crescendo. They stayed up all night writing novels and worshiping these saints that they made up. And then they would go to bed and act out lovemaking scenes from their stories. The more desperate the girls got to hang on to each other, the scarier their ideas got. Since Honora was the one that was totally forbidding Pauline to move away with Juliet, the girls decided that the only way they would ever be together would be to kill her. They came up with a plan to pretend like they were fine with Juliet's move. And then on the final day, they would have Honora take Pauline to see Juliet for the last time, but they would instead lure her to a secluded spot, hit her on the head with a brick, and then run and find help and claim that Honora had accidentally fallen. Their plan evolved into the following events. On June 21st, Juliet told her mom that Pauline had invited her to go on a picnic with her and her mom, Honora. Hilda and Dr. Henry said yes, and the girls made their plans for the following day. On June 22nd, Juliet dressed herself in a new skirt and cheerfully got ready for the picnic. Once the girls were ready, Honora took them to Victoria Park in Christchurch. This park was situated up on a slope, so there were varying levels of the park. There was a large plateau area with a kiosk at the top for um, the caretaker and his wife, and they provided meals and tea for the visitors. And there was a stone wall on the east side, and then on the other side of that stone wall, the hillside sharply declined into a big wide valley. So this park kind of is like a big nature preserve type of place, if you can imagine, with really thick tree covering on the hillside and a dirt path, you know, that visitors can take down to the bottom of the valley. So we're not talking about like a park, a little tiny neighborhood park with a playground. We're talking about like a state park, big, massive park. With a kiosk with meals and tea? That sounds amazing. Well, I mean, I've been like on a few different hikes where they have like a little, We're talking. I mean, Melissa, it's not like a five-star restaurant. You use the word meals and tea. Tea makes me think we're going to be sitting for a while. This sounds like a real big shindig. It's not like throwing Dasani water bottles at your head or anything. isn't tea a meal? But it says meals. I don't think in this case, I feel like tea is referring to the like snacky time, meal time that we don't do that in the U.S. We Fine. Just, 
fine. <laughs> we don't have tea time, but tea is a meal, right? It's not it's not like literally just tea. Oh, um, okay. I was not aware. Man, I'm learning a lot today. Okay, so after getting to the park, the girls in Honora went to the kiosk and had tea at about 2.40. So tea is like an afternoon snack meal. It doesn't mean, I mean, maybe they did drink tea. TBD. TBD. (laughs) We don't know what they did. (laughs) TBD. The caretaker's wife, Agnes, served the three ladies and said they appeared perfectly normal and at ease during that afternoon. They quietly had tea and then started on their hike down the dirt path. The girls weren't gone very long. At about 3.30, they actually came running back to the kiosk, breathless and hardly able to get words out. But they managed to say, quote, please help us. Mummy has been hurt, covered with blood, end quote. Juliet was absolutely hysterical while Pauline was quieter, albeit she was white as a sheet and really looked like she had just seen a ghost. Both of the teens had blood on their clothes and their hands, and Pauline had blood splattered on her face. Agnes told her husband to come help figure out what was going on while the girls begged them not to make them go back down this path. So the caretaker asked where Honora had fallen, and he went to check on her by himself. Meanwhile, he tells Agnes to call for an ambulance. While Pauline and Juliet waited for help to arrive, they washed the blood off themselves and asked for Agnes to call their fathers to come get them. Agnes tried calling Pauline's dad, but got no answer. So then she called Dr. Henry, and he agreed to come pick up the girls. When Agnes asked them to tell her more about what happened, they started acting really weird. Juliet said, quote, don't talk about it, don't talk about it, end quote. Pauline said that Honora had slipped on a plank. She said it wasn't broken or anything. She just slipped, and her head, quote, kept bumping and banging as she fell, end quote. The girls started making other strange remarks, such as it felt like it was a dream that they were just going to wake up from this. And Agnes, who I'm sure was pretty confused by this entire story, tried to reassure the girls by suggesting that maybe Honora hadn't been hurt that badly. But the girls just stared back at her and didn't say anything. They said that they had tried to help Honora by picking her up and carrying her, but she was too heavy. So they accidentally dropped her and possibly caused further injury. All the while, the girls keep saying that they want to go home. Juliet kept asking if her daddy would be long and saying she wished he'd just hurry. She was more frantic while Pauline was quiet and calm and seemingly in a daze. While the girls were talking to Agnes and waiting for Henry to arrive, the groundskeeper Kenneth and one of the park employees went down the path to find Honora. After just a few minutes, they found her. She was lying about 13 feet away from a bridge, and Kenneth immediately noticed that whatever had happened here was no accident. Honora's head was severely injured, way beyond what would occur if somebody had slipped and fallen. She had no signs of life when the men found her. Kenneth went back to the kiosk to call the police while the other employees stayed with Honora's body. At about the same time, the police, the ambulance, and Dr. Henry all arrived at the park. Pauline kept a quiet demeanor while Juliet seemed agitated. Henry provided his address to the driver of the ambulance, and then he left with the girls while the police and EMS went down the path to where Honora was. Everyone on the scene agreed about one thing. It wasn't an accident. Eventually, Honora's husband, Herbert, was reached and notified about his wife's death, and he made his way to the park as well. At around 6 p.m., homicide detectives arrived at the park to find Honora's body lying face up with her head severely injured and a stream of blood flowing down the hill. 
Her lower denture had been dislodged during the assault, and it was laying near her jaw. Her arms and stockings were covered in mud and blood, and half a brick was found near her head. They also found a bloody and knotted-up woman's stocking a few feet away, leading them to believe that Honora had been beaten over the head with a brick that was encased in the stocking. Nothing suggested that Honora's body had been dragged or moved, and her belongings were scattered around her. There was no blood found on the path, which meant that she hadn't fallen and injured herself, like the girls had said, while she was walking on it. An autopsy later determined that Honora suffered 45 discernible injuries to her head and face. Her skull was fractured and she had 24 lacerations. Honora suffered these injuries while she was on the ground and immobile. Based on the bruising to her neck, it was clear that she'd been held down by the throat. A laceration to her finger suggested that she had tried to defend herself at some point. Juliet's mother, Hilda, was shaken to see the girls when they arrived back with Dr. Henry. They said that Honora had died by accident. Hilda believed that the girls were in shock, so she called her new boyfriend, Walter, who was also apparently a doctor, and told him about the incident. She wanted to know if there was any treatment for shock. He came over and made tea for the girls while Hilda got them in the bath. Walter saw the bloody clothing that the girls had been wearing laying on the floor next to the bathroom, and he thought that since the girls were in shock, they shouldn't have to see these bloody clothes again. So he picks up the clothes and he takes them straight to the cleaners. I'd say we'd trash them, but okay, let's try and get that out, I guess. When police inquired about the girls' clothing, Walter did his best to describe the condition they were in prior to taking them for cleaning. Walter did not discuss the incident with the girls, but he did give them a sedative to help them sleep that night. Juliet refused to talk about anything related to this quote-unquote accident. She distanced herself by reciting all of her favorite poems until she was so tired that she just went to sleep. She seemed entirely disconnected from the reality of what was happening. At first, Juliet's parents believed that Honora had died truly in an accident of some kind until a detective showed up at the door to talk to the girls. Dr. Henry asked Walter if he would sit in on the interviews, and Walter agreed. Detectives spoke to Pauline while she was in her bed. She told them that she and her mom and Juliet went to Victoria Park that day. They had tea at the kiosk, and then they went down the path until they got to the end, and they turned around. It was on the way back that Pauline said her mother, who was walking a couple feet behind the girls, slipped on a plank and fell. She said that Honora's head seemed to, quote, toss up and down, and quote, hitting the stones. She said her mom made some sounds, but she couldn't make out any words. She said then the girls ran back to the kiosk and told the people there, which were Agnes and Kenneth, that her mother was dead. Pauline said she knew her mom wasn't alive anymore based on the amount of blood that they saw. She told officers that she had a stocking with her in her bag that they used to wipe the blood up with. The story that Juliet gave was similar to Pauline's version, except she said with certainty that she did see Honora hit her head more than one time. The detective speaking to Juliet didn't believe anything she said at all. He actually didn't even think she was present when Honora had fallen and hit her head. And when he asked her if she was telling the truth, Juliet hesitated to answer. Walter, who was listening to the interview, asked the officer if he could have a minute alone with Juliet. And he used the time to tell her that, you know, she really needed to come clean and tell the truth. And finally, Juliet broke down and told him that she wasn't there when Honora died. She was actually further up the path. She said that when she went back, she saw Honora lying on the ground and Pauline said that she had slipped. 
At that point, the detective went back to Pauline and informed her that she was under suspicion of murdering her mother, and he read her rights to her. Pauline had no response, so the detective asked her to tell him what happened, and Pauline arrogantly replied, No, you ask me questions. I just can't imagine. I know. This whole thing is very just, this next section is is very wild to me. Yeah. So the line of questioning began with, who assaulted your mother? And Pauline replied, I did. She was then asked why. She said, if you don't mind, I won't answer that question. And then the officer asked her, when did you make up your mind to kill your mother? She said, a few days ago. He said, did you tell anyone you were going to do it? And Pauline replied, no, my friend did not know anything about it. She was out of sight at the time. She had gone on ahead. So then he asked her, what did your mother say when you struck her? She said, I would rather not answer that. When asked how often that she had hit her mom, she said, I don't know, but a great many times, I imagine. And when he asked her what she used, she said, a half brick inside of the foot of a stocking. I took them with me for the purpose. I had the brick in my shoulder bag. I wish to state that Juliet did not know of my intentions, and she did not see me strike my mother. I took the chance to strike my mother when Juliet was away. I still do not wish to say why I killed my mother. The officer then asked, did you tell Juliet that you killed your mother? And Pauline said, she knew nothing about it. As far as I know, she believed what I told her, although she may have guessed what had happened, but I doubt it, as we were both so shaken that it probably did not occur to her. The officer then finally asked, why did Juliet tell the same story as you to the lady in the tea kiosk? And Pauline said, I think she simply copied what I said. She might have suspected what I had done, and she would not have wished to believe it, nor would have got me in trouble. As soon as I had started to strike my mother, I regretted it, but I could not stop. So after this little game of 21 questions, Pauline was arrested. It's wild to me that she would answer so many questions and then not some of them. You know what I mean? Like, right. I'll tell you when I decided to. I won't tell you why. I'll tell you this, but I won't tell you that. Like, it's it's interesting to me. Yeah. So later that night, investigators uncovered a lot of evidence in Pauline's bedroom, including 14 books she'd written, a scrapbook, and her diary. In the diary, Pauline confessed to several bad behaviors, including that she and Juliet had engaged in shoplifting, attempts at blackmail, and sex. It was on a page dated February 13th that they found the first mention of Pauline's desire for her mother to be dead. She wrote, quote, Why could not mother die? Dozens of people, thousands of people are dying every day. So why not mother and father too, end quote. My gosh. Yeah, that is, wow. That would that would be so alarming to uh, run into in, in this investigation. Yeah. So in April, she wrote about a time when Juliet's mom made her apologize to Walter for something. And the girls got angry about it. So they went to a field and watched the members of a riding club. When someone rode by on their horse, the girls actually shouted mean things at them. Pauline wrote that she enjoyed it and that being mean and nasty brought them great cheer. She said they came back that day and wrote out the Ten Commandments so they could break them all later. Yikes. What in the world? This is just wild to me how it evolved into like into this. Yeah. Yeah. Those are those are pretty big commandments there. And you're trying to break all of them. There are a few that I'm pretty sure most of us will never break. But they're (laughs) they're on. Yeah, that's just wild. But it's such a weird thing to do as a teenager to be like, let's write out the Ten Commandments so we can, like, actively try to break them. Like, what in the world? I know. Like, that is – I just don't have any words. Just what? (laughs) I know. 
maybe iPads and stuff aren't that bad. Maybe they are (laughs) helpful. Maybe kids' imaginations can do too much. That's what I'm learning from this. So Pauline evidently succeeded in this, like all 10 of these commandments, but Juliet only ended up breaking nine of them. Later in April, Pauline wrote that her anger towards her mom had reached a boiling point, and she felt that Honora was one of the main obstacles in her way. She said, quote, suddenly a means of ridding myself of the obstacle occurred to me, end quote. The next day, she elaborated and wrote that she wanted to make her mom's death look natural or accidental. By April 30th, Pauline shared her desire to kill Honora with Juliet. Throughout the month of May, the girls participated in shoplifting and stealing money to fund their journey to America. But by June, they were back to brainstorming methods of murder. On June 19th, Pauline wrote that she and Juliet had practically finished writing their books and that the main goal for that particular day was to come up with a definite plan to kill Honora. She wrote, quote, We have worked it out carefully and are both thrilled with the idea. Naturally, we feel a trifle nervous, but the pleasure of anticipation is great, end quote. In the coming days, the girls continued to finalize the plan, and on June 21st, Pauline wrote that it would be the last time she wrote in the diary before the murder. But she ended up making one final entry on the morning of June 22nd. It said, quote, I am writing a little of this up in the morning before the death. I feel very excited, like the night before Christmassy last night. I did Oof. not have pleasant dreams, though, end quote, which, um, no kidding, <laughs> Like, yeah, that is I would hope you didn't sleep well knowing what your plan was. (laughs) I know. But just comparing it to the night before Christmas, like that anticipation, even like negative things, like if somebody is afraid of flying, they don't compare that to Christmas morning, uh, right? (laughs) Christmas morning. Yeah. Like this is actually joy and excitement that they're having. Right. Wow. So based on what was written in Pauline's diary, the detective now believed that Juliet actually was present when Honora was murdered. He went and spoke with her again and confronted her about it. And immediately she apologized for lying and said that she wanted to tell the truth now. Juliet admitted that she and Pauline had actually lured Honora to the park to confront her about not letting Pauline go to South Africa. While they were walking back up the path, Juliet said that she was in the front and was expecting Honora to be attacked. She heard arguing and noises coming from behind her, and she saw that Hanora was in a squatting position and could tell that they were, quote, quarreling. Juliet went back to where they were and saw Pauline hit Hanora with the brick inside the stocking, and she said that she took the stocking and hit Hanora as well. She said it was terrible, but she wanted to help Pauline. She said that Hanora moved convulsively for a while and that the two girls held her until she was still. The reason the brick was no longer inside the stocking was because it had come out due to the force of the blows. Juliet ended by telling the detective that she wasn't actually positive whether or not Honora was going to die that day when they first got to the park. She thought they might be able to simply scare her into giving her consent for Pauline to move away. But she said that after the first blow, she knew that it would be necessary for them to kill Honora. Both of the girls ended up pleading not guilty to the murder by reason of insanity. And we're going to get into what happened with the trial and the end of this story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. I'm someone who has an all or nothing approach to most things. 
While this approach may be helpful to some people for certain things, it has never benefited me when it comes to my eating habits. In fact, it's really set me up for failure. If I decide to stick to a certain way of eating and I go off on one day, I feel like I've failed and I give up on the whole idea and punish myself. It's not a healthy way to look at most things, but especially not food, which is why I like Noom. Noom uses an approach based on psychology and scientific proven principles that help people understand their relationship with food. Noom is about progress and not perfection, because they know everyone's journey and goals are different. Starting any new plan can be stressful, just taking the first step to begin. But that's why I love the Noom app. It's super easy to use, and you can make it fit into your schedule. Just set aside 5, 10, or 15 minutes a day. How much time you spend is totally up to you. Over the past few years, how I eat and what I eat has directly impacted how I feel. So for me, Noom is crucial to supporting my goals of feeling overall better and healthy. In the parenting world, we talk a lot about helicopter parenting, that all or nothing approach I mentioned before. That's what some plans actually feel like to me. It's like I can't make my own decisions and I have someone looking over my shoulder just waiting for me to fail. But with Noom, I feel empowered because I'm learning how to make informed choices so I'm able to do it on my own and make it a part of my lifestyle. Sign up for your trial and get psychology-based support and motivation to reach your goals at noom.com slash moms. That's noom.com slash moms to sign up for your trial. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One NA, member FDIC. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. And now back to the episode. 
So before the break, we talked about the detectives going through these journals and novels and all of this stuff and realizing that Pauline and Juliet were both in on it together and that they decided to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. So Pauline and Juliet's trial was actually going to be held jointly. It was a huge spectacle, as you can imagine, in the media, and it was highly sensationalized due to the speculation about the girls' insanity pleas and their sexual relationship. On the first day of the trial, there were about 60 people, mostly women, who lined up to get a chance at sitting in the courtroom. The court was packed for most of the days of the trial, so authorities brought the girls in shortly after 9 a.m. to avoid the large crowds forming at the door each morning. The Crown said that Honora's death was premeditated and callously planned. They said the girls weren't incurably insane at all, that they were just incurably bad. Both girls, they said, were extremely smart. They told the jury that the evidence would prove that the girls were involved in a conspiracy to kill Honora with the motive being that Honora disapproved of their relationship and wanted to put an end to it. As for the details that were laid out in the trial, the Crown alleged that this was how the murder went down. Juliet had brought along a small pink stone, which she placed on the path at some point, and then later pointed it out to Honora to distract her. And so when Honora bends down to pick up the unique looking stone, Pauline took the stocking that had the brick in it and began striking her mother from behind. It was suggested that the girls thought that one blow would be all that it would take to kill Honora, but it wasn't. Pauline and Juliet had to strike her multiple times, causing injuries way too severe to pass off as a slip and fall accident. But with no plan B in place, the girls had to stick to the story and just hope for the best. During the trial, it came out that Hanora and Herbert were never married, which, as we mentioned earlier, was considered majorly scandalous at that period in time. So the Crown urged that the jury set that aside and said that their relationship had nothing to do with the murder and there was nothing to suggest that they were anything other than good parents who did nothing wrong. Three different psychiatrists took the stand to testify regarding whether or not the girls were actually legally insane. Dr. Kenneth Stallworthy believed that they were sane at the time of the killing because they both knew at the time that their actions were wrong and against the law. This was clear, he said, based on the things Pauline wrote in her diary about. Additionally, the girls had actually told Dr. Stallworthy that they were aware they were committing the murder and even said, quote, you'd have to be an absolute moron not to know murder was against the law, end quote. And their lawyer did not advise them to keep their mouth shut. No. <laughs> and they like literally already had the Ten Commandments out. Like they definitely knew uh, murder was right. uh, against the law. So the doctor said the girls were obsessed with each other and nothing was more important to them than being together. As for the defense, they actually admitted that the girls had irrefutably killed Honora, but that it was their mental capacity and sanity that was in question. The defense said the girls needed pity more than blame because they were very mentally ill. Psychiatrists for the defense stated that both girls were suffering from paranoia and delusions, which they alleged was a symptom of their homosexuality. They tried to prove that the girls had a sort of communicated insanity, which made them insane, I guess, only when they were in each other's presence, which is really out there and far-fetched. And as a member of a jury, I would be like, okay, I don't know But about can I that. tell you, I could almost like – you know how you hear those combination like these two people, no one would have ever ex expected them to have killed somebody, but you put them together and they're so volatile toxic yeah, together or yeah. whatever. Mm -hmm. I can see where they're going with that for sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so a psychiatrist testified that Pauline's family had numerous health problems, you know, from Pauline's childhood illnesses to the younger sister that was born with Down syndrome and her parents, two babies that died at birth. They were trying to make some kind of point that Pauline hadn't come from the best gene pool, which is like so awful for her family. So the nature of the girl's relationship was dissected for the court, of course, with the defense expert saying that there was no proof that any physical relationship between the two girls had occurred, but that there was plenty of evidence to suggest that it had. Dr. Medlicott said that he believed they were suffering from paranoia at the time of the attack, and paranoia is a form of insanity where there's this surface appearance of normalcy, um, according to this doctor. He considered the girls certifiably insane and said that they even abused him during their evaluations. He claimed that Pauline called him an irritating fool and said that he was displeasing to look at, which sounds about right for Pauline and her attitude. Right. And then after her physical exam, Pauline told this doctor that she hoped he broke his neck. He said that Juliet gave him a hard time for not speaking clearly. And he concluded that both of the girls had this flip-flopped moral sense, and they seemed to admire all things evil while condemning things that were typically considered good. Another doctor testified for the defense and said that the very act of murdering Hanora was the proof of insanity that they were looking for. He said that this idea that Hanora must be killed in order for the two girls to be together was stupid, but yet they continued to justify it. And anything that threatened their being together was justification for murder. He described the reasons that he believed the girls suffered from paranoia and why they followed their delusions. They became antisocial and they believed they were superior to the rest of the human race. He said that while the girls were more intellectually advanced than most girls their age, they were not some kind of intellectual giants, and they were clearly suffering delusions of grandeur about themselves. Wow. When Juliet's mom, Hilda, testified, she was asked if she thought that Juliet grasped the reality of the situation, to which Hilda replied, I would say definitely not. She then talked about the concerns that she and Dr. Henry had been having regarding Juliet's behavior and personality changes prior to the murder, but they never thought she was insane. In the months leading up to the killing, Juliet became more defiant and impossible to discipline. She would become so deeply engaged in her characters that we talked about from these stories that she was constantly living in a fantasy land. Her parents tried to set boundaries and times when she wasn't allowed to be in character, but Juliet only grew to resent it. When it was time to deliberate, the jury had one question to answer. Did the girls know that what they were doing was wrong or not? If yes, they would be found guilty. After hearing a total of five experts testify that the girls were not insane, the jury unsurprisingly found the girls guilty after two hours of deliberation. When the verdict was read, both girls were calm, even as they were sentenced to an indefinite prison sentence. The girls were too young for the death penalty, although that was an option in New Zealand at the time. They were not allowed to contact each other after their sentences were read. Pauline was sent to one prison while a new unit was being built near Wellington, where she was eventually transferred. Juliet was sent to a different prison, where she endured what she called, quote, primitive and unpleasant conditions. She said she was the only child in the entire prison, and she spent the first three months alone in solitary confinement. During that time, she prayed, cried, and repented. She later told the London Times Saturday Magazine that she was guilty, and it was the right place for her to be. During her stay at this prison, inmates were forced to do hard labor during the day, but after just two weeks of this, Juliet had a collapsing spell, and she was then sent to work inside sewing the uniforms instead. 
There were no luxuries in this prison. They didn't even have books or even fruit. After spending about five years in prison, both of the girls were actually released and given new identities, which is so wild to me. I know that, you know, different countries have different types of sentences for different types of crimes. And they were, of course, underage when this murder took place. But five years in a new identity, that is crazy. I don't even, did Casey Anthony even get a new identity? No, she's still trucking along. Yeah, that's just wild to me. Um, So they both stayed out of the public eye until 1994 when a movie, the one that I mentioned in the intro of this episode, called Heavenly Creatures was released. So this movie is the one that I looked everywhere for, and I mean everywhere. But as it turns out, it's not available for streaming or purchase online anywhere in this country. But the movie starred Melanie Linsky as Pauline and Kate Winslet as Juliet, which really just makes me wish I could watch it even more because I also found out that this was the film debut for both Melanie and Kate Winslet. Wow. Yeah. And um, she was 18 when she got the role and she won this role over 175 girls who auditioned for the part, which is crazy. I just really wish I could find this movie. Melissa, you said that you saw this movie years ago. Years ago. And I had no idea that this was a real case whenever I saw it. Like I I couldn't tell you any context of seeing it. I just remember seeing this movie and being like, what did I just watch? Did you see it like in the theater or like on a DVD? No, no, no. I saw it on like HBO or something. It was one of those like, but like I wasn't really looking for it. Just one where you're like, okay, I guess I'll watch this, you know, and now I'm like, I want to see it again. Yeah. I wasted so much time looking for this movie. You know, it was so frustrating not being able to find it because at some point you're just like, okay, we, we all have the same internet. Like, how is it not available? Like, how right. can I not well, find this movie? This is crazy to me. Rebecca, who I co-host Criminality with, she, um, I mentioned to her, I'm like, hey, have you heard of this movie? And she's like, yeah. Whenever I was doing some book club with Tony Ball, one of the hosts of Crime Writers On, this was the book. And they all looked for the movie to see it and it had been taken, you know, they couldn't find it either. This was like a couple years ago, I guess. Yeah, yeah, super bizarre. So Peter Jackson of Lord of the Rings directed the movie and Melanie Linsky was um, actually discovered for this film when a co-writer for the movie was searching for somebody who looked like Pauline. Melanie was 16 during the filming, but she received a lot of recognition for her performance and even won Best Actress at the New Zealand Film Awards. Melanie and Kate were fully into their characters and even spent all their time together during filming, just like Pauline and Juliet did. Interestingly, something that doesn't happen often, much of this movie was actually filmed in the genuine locations where these events took place. When they got to the part of the park where the murder occurred, Peter Jackson said that it was eerily quiet and it just didn't feel right to be filming there, so they moved up the path a couple hundred yards to film that scene. Heavenly Creatures was nominated for a lot of awards, including Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars. When the movie was released, the media tracked down Pauline and Juliet, who were now, as we said, living under these new identities. Juliet had assumed the name Anne Perry, and she was put on a flight to Rome, where she ended up meeting up with her dad, and then the two of them went to England. Juliet traveled and held several jobs, including flight attendant and underwriter for insurance. Eventually, and this is pretty crazy to me, she started working as a murder mystery writer, which the writer part doesn't surprise me because obviously they were very into making up these elaborate stories, you know, from a very early age. But the fact that she went for a murder mystery writer, like, yeah, really do what you know. Yeah. So the first book that she released was called The Carter Street Hangman in 1979, and it's about a Victorian policeman named Thomas Pitt. 
Juliet, or Anne rather, eventually wrote 32 books in this series, as well as other series and standalone books. Over 26 million copies of her books have been sold today. Again, why is that so mind-blowing and wild to me? It makes me want to read something of hers just to check it out. But according to her, she had never actually drawn from her own experience to write any of the stories, and she tried to block out her past as much as she could. Her books actually are void of extreme detail, and they don't involve any over-the-top suffering. Apparently, they're just kind of your run-of-the-mill murder mystery books. Juliet and her brother, a retired doctor at this point, moved to Scotland together, and they restored a barn to live in. Her brother ended up becoming her full-time researcher, and Juliet became a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She never got married. In September of 1994, Juliet told the media that when Honora was killed, Pauline was under immense stress and desperately wanted to go to South Africa with Juliet and her father. Juliet said that she feared that Pauline would take her own life as she wasn't able to be with Juliet, and Juliet felt this responsibility to remain loyal to Pauline. Juliet claimed that she and Pauline were nothing more than really good friends and that there was they were never in a sexual relationship. She said that she preferred men for romance. After the release from prison, Pauline and Juliet had no contact with each other. Juliet said she wanted to rebuild her life. Juliet said she found out about the Heavenly Creatures movie the day it was released, and she's never seen it. It wasn't until 1996 that Pauline was tracked down in a quiet village in England, living under the new name of Hilary Nathan. She was a recluse, and no one there knew anything about her past. Following her release, she went to the University of Auckland and graduated with a BA, and then she spent a year at a New Zealand library school where she was known as being mysterious and secretive, making sure she even avoided being in the class photo. She eventually moved to Britain in 1965 and worked for a library, but eventually gave up on being a librarian entirely. When she was tracked down in 1996, she was operating a writing school for kids, which isn't really surprising since she'd always loved horses and dreamed of one day having a stable. Pauline had little contact with the outside world, and she also became very religious after prison. Her sister said that she was a devout Roman Catholic who spent a lot of time praying, and she also never got married. She lived the life of a nun, although she wasn't able to become one. But she lived in solitude, didn't have a TV or radio, and she was deeply, deeply religious. According to Pauline's sister, she had led a good life and showed remorse for what she had done. Her sister, Wendy, also said that she had chosen to forgive her sister for killing their mom, and they were able to keep in touch, although they never discussed the murder until the 1980s. She said Pauline took about five years to fully grasp what she had done and the finality of it all. Pauline has also not seen the movie Heavenly Creatures and has no desire to. She also has no idea what Juliet is up to. Wow. Big wow. Big wow. It's so amazing that these two could not be apart from each other, and now their lives are literally the most apart. You know what I mean? Like, that's where this all comes from, and now they they don't want anything to do with each other. You know, I don't know. It's just wild, like, the whole point of this. It's almost like sometimes I feel like you hear about situations where people are in a very codependent or toxic type of relationship, and then once they are separated from each other – in this case, it was by force because they both went to separate prisons. But right. um, it's almost like when they have that time of self-reflection and they're Clarity. just have to spend time alone and think back on everything, it's like it's then that they finally understand, totally. you know? And so it kind of 
feel like maybe that happened a little bit here where, you know, they both served their time in prison. They both got out and they were given these new lives, these new identities and, you know, kind of a fresh start. I can kind of understand why they would just be like, yeah, let's not try to find each other, you know, at this point. Absolutely. There's nothing good that's going to come from that. But wild, and they were able to really change their lives. I mean, I I don't know how I feel about the whole getting a new identity after five years and starting yeah, over. Yeah, that's, that's, that's different. <laughs> it is, but it seemed to work in this case, at least. Like that time, you know, it seems like they really did change their lives. But wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. I also think it's just crazy how Juliet, you know, went on to be a successful writer. She sold 26 million copies of her books. Like, wow, that's really something, and that's a – I mean, it's a success story that a lot of people who have been to prison for murder don't have. So, I mean, good for her, I guess. But, yeah, I, th- I feel like the end part of the story, the aftermath, is just as interesting to me as, you know, what got them there in the first place. Because, yeah, it's definitely a different type of outcome than what we typically see in a murder story. So, yeah, this was really an interesting one. I liked this case. Okay, Mandy, are you ready to move on? I'm ready to turn the page and move on. Turn the page. Okay. That's your line. So I want, I like yes. started to do it. And I was like, no, I got to, last week I tried to do something different in the intro. <laughs> I can't, I can't do anything different today. Okay, Mandy, I think I came up with this idea, but I'm not entirely sure because I listen to a show and they play games sometimes. So I might've just converted some of this from the show I was listening to. I could be wrong. Here's my idea. I haven't even told you the full idea. I am going to set a timer for one minute. And during that one minute, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and you have to answer the questions. And you are going to tell me when you think the minute's almost up. You want to get as close to one minute as possible, but you can't go over. So like price is right rules or whatever. So you want to be like one second left when you think it's been a minute. Okay. That makes sense. And then when you ask me questions, I'm going to do the same thing. So we're trying to like, you're trying to keep that time going on in your head what you think a minute is and uh i'm trying to confuse you by asking you questions okay so i'm just going to answer as many questions as i can in one minute answer as many as you can (laughs) and when you think it's been one minute you let me know okay do not turn a timer on i should say that do not put a timer on but i will put one on for you so all right tell me when you're ready and i'll press it okay i'm ready all right don't go over a minute ready set go Name three favorite of your favorite Mariah Carey songs. Um, Always Be My Baby, Heartbreaker, and oh, no. Wait. We can go to the next thing. Yeah, next thing. <laughs> a name a friend uh, who you had when you were 10 years old. Chelsea. Okay. Favorite dessert? Key lime pie. A movie you could watch over and over? Uh, the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> oh, gosh. Superpower you wish you had? Uh, invisibility. Um, favorite corn nut flavor? Ranch. <laughs> Least favorite corn nut flavor? Original. Oh, favorite reptile? Ew, I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Favorite bird? Uh, blue jay. Um, least favorite fruit? Honeydew. And has it been a minute? <laughs> okay, so you have seven seconds left. Mandy, you did really well. Um, so your time is seven seconds, right? So I've got to get under seven seconds to beat you. Okay. Does this game make sense? It makes sense to me. Okay. Okay. All right. It's just random. Okay. Um, and I was trying to think of short games, and this is literally two minutes. Okay. Tell me whenever I'm ready. Oh, wait. Am I? Hit the timer. Okay. I'm going to hit the timer. Do you have questions for me? I have questions for you, yes. Okay, good. All right, then yes. Okay, so you're ready? Yep, go. Okay, all right, and go. 
All right. So toilet paper over or under? Under. What is the best type of cheese? All. (laughs) (laughs) How many chickens do you think it would take to kill an elephant? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) 14,000. What mythical creature would improve the world most if it existed? I don't think it would be a dragon. That doesn't sound good. Well, maybe a happy dragon. Puff the magic dragon. Puff the magic dragon. There you go. (laughs) Perfectly. Uh, Perfectly. Perfect. Um, What would be the worst buy one, get one free sale of all time? Um, COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that would be awful. How many pull-ups can you do in a row? Zero. (laughs) (laughs) What are you having for dinner tonight? Oh, melting pot. It's my anniversary. Ooh, nice. Um, Would you want to live forever if you could? No, absolutely not. (laughs) All right, stop. Okay. Actually, I think you went like two seconds over, but I will let you have it. No, that means I lost. Oh, you lost. Okay, well, I won't let you you have it. I win. (laughs) Way to go. (laughs) I was really trying to push it there. I don't know anything about what I said 14,000 about. Several things I think I I lied about. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to stay concentrated on the time. Oh, okay. Well, that was something, Mandy. We learned a little about each other and- we wasted two minutes of everyone's time. Exactly. I love it. I love doing that. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that was a very nice and long episode for you this week. Hope you enjoyed it. We will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.